Acts. Let's turn in our Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to start reading with verse 2. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why did the scribes say that, Elijah, that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. They did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come before you in your word this morning in the name of Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would bless the reading of your word and the teaching of your word. And I pray that we would all be given ears to hear what the Spirit is saying through the word this morning. God, we're all different places, got different issues in our lives, but Lord, preeminent over all of that is what does this text say? How does it affect our lives and our worship? Lord, I pray you would be glorified and I pray you would be magnified this morning. It's in the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen. Amen. This is obviously one of the most powerful, most important passages in the gospel accounts uh, outside of the birth narrative, outside of the resurrection narrative. Uh, narrative is just a fancy way of saying story. Is that all right? I'm just using, just like to throw the words out there. Uh, the birth narrative, the resurrection narrative, the transfiguration story right here where Jesus is revealed in all of his glory. This is one of the most important aspects because it is letting everybody know, Mark is letting everybody know, Jesus is not merely an exalted teacher. He is not just a regular guy. He is the Messiah. And I point that out because there are scholars, in particular in the book of Mark, uh, and by scholars I mean the really, really smart people that are really, really dumb. Uh, not all scholars are dumb, but there are some scholars that are really, really, really smart, but they spend all of that mental energy trying to dissect how Jesus is not who he plainly is. They don't want him to be the Son of God. Uh, they just want him to be a good teacher. That way they can make up their own rules as they go in life. So there are some that try to make that point throughout the book of Mark that it doesn't give us uh, enough divine information. But you read this and you're like, I don't, 
I don't know what you do with this other than to say this is God pulling back the shade and the glory of God through Christ comes through temporarily to a select group and then it's pulled back. The transfiguration. So we are now in this moment marching towards the cross. I started saying that last week, but it's going to become more and more evident. They're headed towards Jerusalem and we are marching towards Jesus' destiny on the cross. And that ties in to this story. So I think, uh, for those of you taking notes that are organized, there's three major themes uh, in this passage of Scripture. The glory of Christ, the suffering of Christ, and the bafflement of men. Or more importantly, or more specifically, the bafflement of the disciples. Or we could say the ongoing bafflement of the disciples, as we have repeatedly seen that they are only getting it in little tiny slices, which is and should be an ongoing encouragement to us and our walk with God. So I want to I look at that. I want to talk about that. I want to explore that. So let's, let's go back to verse 2 and let's move through this, uh, this story. Verse 2 starts by saying, and after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the mountain. Six days after what? Six days after he told them that the Messiah would have to suffer, be rejected, be held in contempt, be killed, and then be raised from the dead. Remember we talked about last week and Peter rebuked Jesus and said, no way. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. So six days after that, Jesus has dropped this major bombshell that I am the Messiah that will suffer. And we spent a lot of time discussing the reason this was a bombshell is everybody has in their mind that the Messiah is also the political and military deliverer of physical Israel. They have no concept of Jesus, the Messiah, being the spiritual deliverer from the bondage of sin. That's not what's in their mind. It's easy for us. We're on this side of the cross. Where they were, it was not their understanding. They were raised different than that. That's just not the way we were raised, Jesus. That's just not the way it, that's not the way it is. But it is the way that it is. They just didn't know that it was the way that it is. Everybody following the grammar there? Okay. So six days, and I would love, when we get to heaven, this is one of the things I want to see. What goes on in those six days? I'll tell you what I think goes on. is depression. I think that's what's going on. They're probably, you just see Peter and those guys like kicking rocks around like, he's going to die? This can't be right. You know, whenever you get confronted with something that you've never considered before, and you love Jesus, you love everything that he's doing, and God has revealed to Peter that he is the Messiah. So he knows that's true. He has had a spiritual revelation. That has not been removed. He knows he's the Messiah. But he thinks the Messiah is this. 
And Jesus says, it's this. So they're probably depressed. They're probably percolating on anxieties and fears. Because Jesus followed up his little revelation of the Messiah suffering by saying, if you want to be my disciples, you are going to pick up your death, your cross, and follow me. This is not what they thought they had signed up for. Which I would just throw out here as a little softball that most modern evangelical Christians don't think of their relationship with Christ in this way either. And frequently do not realize what they think they've signed up for in following Christ. This idea of suffering that Jesus guarantees to every last one of us is clearly not the big amen getter in a sermon. You're all going to suffer. Amen. No, that's not what happens. You just kind of stare at me like, please get me off the hook in some way, shape, or form. Please provide some kind of balance. Well, historically, we've had periods where the church enjoyed great power and peace, and that was accompanied by great moral failure and, and lackadaisical laziness. And we've had periods of time in church history where the church was under incredible duress and under incredible persecution, and it flourished and grew in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see these ebbs and flows throughout church history. Where are we now? We're in the middle of an ebb. That's my opinion. The, the way that we have known for several generations was a flow of, of really wonderful, in our country, it's not true all over the world. If you talk to the Chinese church, and the Chinese, I met a, I met a brother from China, and it bothered me. The, uh, were you with me, babe, when we met that guy? He was at an, an event we were at, and one of the things he said, he had, he had escaped out from under uh, the, the communist Chinese uh, government, and he had come to America, and he kept going to churches looking for the Holy Spirit, is what he said. Because in comparison to what he experienced, I'm not talking about people falling in the floor. I'm talking about the tangible reality of the presence of God through the Word of God and through the worship of God's people, through the taking of the Lord's Supper, through the sacraments of baptism. They knew God was with them and they loved not their lives and the death. You meet somebody like that that's living in that context and you, you feel the, oh my gosh, what are we doing? The disciples are learning that this is not exactly what they thought it was. So six days, Jesus takes just three of his disciples. These are the three closest that he has, Peter, James, and John, and I mean close in terms of relationship. They get singled out a lot, and then John, you find out, is really Jesus' closest companion and friend amongst the disciples. You would think it's Peter. He's just the most vocal. Peter's probably my favorite. 
because I need Peter to make me feel better about myself. So he takes them up on a high mountain. Now we're, we're still in Galilee. And they go up on top of it. We're not sure which mountain it is, but they go up on top of a tall mountain. So they've had six days of kicking rocks and staring into campfires and wondering, what does this mean about what Jesus has said? And then he singles them out, says, let's go up on top of the mountain. They climb the mountain, however long that takes, hot and sweaty. They get to the top, and he was transfigured before them. The Greek, the Greek word for that is uh, metamorpho. Everybody knows what metamorphosis is. Everybody remembers learning about the butterfly and the caterpillar, a metamorphosis. Or whenever we use the word transfigured, trans meaning to go beyond, he was transfigured in front of them uh, in a way that was physically altered in the way he appeared. And the, the way it's described is that his clothing becomes radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach clothing. He is glowing with the glory of God. Because he is God in the flesh. And this is the one moment in the ministry and life of Jesus where they get a glimpse of who he is, just a glimpse of who he really is. I was going to have everybody look at the light, but I've decided not to do that. But you can imagine one of these really intense LED lights, except who knows how much brighter, just emanating out of Jesus. Now, you've had a revelation, Peter. You've had a revelation that this is the Messiah. This is something more. This is another step. This is deeper. And it, it goes on. Verse 4. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. I would love to know what they were saying. We don't get to know what they were saying. We do know, Luke tells us, you don't have to turn there, but it's Luke 9.31. It says they spoke to him about his departure. Literally, in Luke, it says they spoke to him about his exodus. That Jesus was departing from this moment and headed straight to Jerusalem. And that's what the next chapters are about, leading to the cross. They were talking to him about his mission to some capacity, and who knows what all they were saying. And Peter, James, and John are there, and they're having a conversation. Moses and Elijah. Now, what do you, what do you imagine the reason for Moses and Elijah? And by the way, Mark is the only one that says it, Elijah and Moses. Now, what the significance of that is, I don't know, uh, because the other, the other synoptic gospels say Moses and Elijah, which would be the normal order because Moses was uh, uh, considered preeminent with the giver of the law, and then Elijah representing the prophets. And that is really the representation. 
if you really want to boil this down, you've got Moses representing the law and Elijah representing the prophets. And so you have the law and the prophets, which all point to Christ and which all testify to Christ. The other thing you have here is Moses had an interesting death. He didn't get to go into the promised land. Everybody remember that? God would not allow Moses in because he had struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock, and he died looking. He was on a mountainside, and he's looking in, but he doesn't get to go in. Elijah just gets sucked up into heaven on a chariot. You remember this story in the Old Testament? So we've got two guys with interesting deaths. Now they're in the promised land. Think about that for a second. They're literally there on the mountain in the promised land, and they're talking with Jesus. There's really a lot of parallels between Jesus and Moses. I'll just give you uh, several of them. Jesus took three disciples up on the mountain. Moses took three individuals as well as uh, 70 elders when he went up on the mountain. Jesus was transfigured, his clothing shone white like the sun. Moses' skin did the same thing because Moses was in the presence of God for 40 days when he received the Ten Commandments. Something else that happens that we read, God shows up in a cloud and speaks here. He does the same thing with Moses. People are astonished later in the chapter 9.15. It says when he comes off the mountain, the people are astonished. And when Moses came off the mountain, everybody hid and said, put your face away, put a veil over your face. The parallels are on purpose, and they're in here to let everybody know a greater than Moses is here. And then Peter rescues us. Peter says to Jesus, this is verse 5, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Verse 6, maybe my favorite verse. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. So Peter's instinct, when in doubt, Make some stuff up. I don't know what to say. I'm terrified. I got to say something. I don't know anybody in my life that's like this, but it's me. I don't know what to do. I'll just start talking. And I think that if I just keep talking, eventually I'll circle around to an answer that hopefully makes sense. Anybody else do that? Now, some people just clam up. I don't. So I totally understand what Peter's feeling. He's standing there. Jesus is transfigured, he is metamorphized in front of him, he sees the glory and the radiance of Christ, and now Moses, who he's heard about his whole life, and Elijah, it doesn't tell us how they know, but they know it's them, they are there talking with Jesus like, okay, it's good that we're here, right? It's good that we're here. It's good that we're here. Let's, uh, we're going to make some tents. We'll make some tents, and you guys can sleep in the tents. We'll be in the tents. Something. Because they were terrified. Now, the tents either were a reference to the, like the Feast of Tabernacles or the booth that they made, or it was shelter. Notice Peter's like, uh, John and James and myself, we'll just sleep out here amongst the rocks. We don't know exactly what he was thinking, but he just had to say something. Thank you, Peter. We're going to come back to that. So the glory of Christ, the first theme here, is that God is giving 
to Peter, James, and John because that's who is the beneficiary of this revelation. He's giving them a glimpse of who he is, God in the flesh. He is not merely a man, but he is a man who is God in the flesh. And this is, this is a moment where that is made clear to them, which would bring about some serious confusion over the next theme, which is the suffering of Christ. And the reason we know that that's an issue is the questions that the disciples are going to ask later. Look, um, look at verse 11 through 13. This is afterwards. Moses and Elijah are gone. But look at what this causes them to want to know. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? I would call this a question, this is a, this is a proximity question. Now don't act like you don't know what that is. Has anybody ever had a difficult issue? You want to talk to maybe someone you love, like your spouse or somebody maybe at work, and you're trying to get some information, but it's such a sensitive topic that you don't want to just come out with it, so you ask a proximity question. You know what that is? It's a fact-finding mission question. If I ask about this, I might get some information about this. What I really want to know is this. But I'm going to ask this instead. Everybody know what I'm talking about? I see some of you shaking your head and smiling. Uh, some of you are looking at your spouses and smiling. So everybody knows what this is. I think that's what this question is. Because Jesus has told them about the suffering. He gets uh, up on the mountain, reveals who he is. And I, I skipped something I shouldn't have. Uh, look, look at verse 7. A cloud overshadows them, a voice out of the cloud, which is the Father, this is my beloved son, listen to him. What do you think that is in reference to? That is a reference to what he's been teaching. What has he been teaching? The Messiah must suffer. He must be rejected. He's going to die and he's going to be raised again. Listen to him. So this revelation for Peter, James, and John is intended to say what he's saying is true. Listen to what he's saying. Now they're coming off the mountain saying, uh, so uh, Jesus, um, uh, why, uh, why do they say Elijah's got to come first? They don't ask about the suffering. Where did this come from? Because they just saw Elijah? Yes. Look at what Jesus says. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. Now, if you're wondering, what are you talking about? It's because we're Gentiles. That's why we wonder, because we don't know. But if you were Jewish, this would make perfect sense to you. Let's go back to Malachi to make this make sense to us. Malachi is the last chapter of the Old Testament. We're going to go to Malachi chapter 4. It's the very last verse of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. 
and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The Jews took this verse to mean that before the Messiah comes, there would be a forerunner in front of him, Elijah, coming again. Because Elijah got sucked up into heaven in a chariot, so he's not, did he technically die? How do, what do we do with what happened to Elijah? So, the Jewish uh, scribes, they believed Elijah was coming before the Messiah. So, so that, everybody got that? There's a lot more to it than that, but that's just the basic understanding. They, they know Elijah's got to come before the Messiah, so they bring up, that kind of question to Jesus after seeing Elijah, you you got to think they're trying to connect the dots in their heads. Like, how, what's what's going on? What's this backdrop of all this suffering? So look again at verse 11. They asked him, why do the scribes say that uh, first Elijah must come? He said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You see that Jesus brings it back to suffering? They ask about Elijah, which I'm calling a proximity question. Jesus brings it back to what the real issue is and says, and by the way, so Elijah is coming first. He does come first. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Jesus brings it back to what he showed them six days ago. The Messiah must suffer. But he doesn't leave them with that. Verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come, past tense, already done it, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Who is Elijah that came? Does anybody want to throw out a guess? Because Jesus tells us somewhere else. John the Baptist. John the Baptist. I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the paths of the Lord. How was this? This is not the way anybody was thinking this is going to work. This is not the expectation. The expectation was not a guy dressed up in camel hair eating bugs and honey. That's not the expectation. Screaming at Pharisees who warned you of the judgment that is to come. The axe is at the root of the trees. Repent. That was his whole message. And Jesus said, did you go out in the wilderness to see somebody dressed up in fancy clothes? Elijah has come. Elijah has prepared the way. He did it. We, that, the way that God fulfilled that prophecy was John the Baptist, the, the last prophet of the Old Testament, so to speak, preparing the way for the Messiah. The point, though, is that Jesus wants to make it clear, you have seen me revealed in glory, and I came here to suffer on behalf of a rebellious, obstinate, stiff-necked people at the hands of a rebellious, stiff-necked, obstinate people. So Jesus is revealed in his glory to his disciples. And he is revealing to them that the point is suffering. Because 
think with me here, if you're Peter, James, and John, and you see Jesus shining like the sun, and you see Moses and Elijah having a conversation, how do you then say, oh yeah, he's going to suffer and die for sure? That is not the reaction that any of us would have. The reaction you would have is, this is it! This is it! This is the end! Kind of like the reaction that people have with current events. When we look at what's going on in the world and we are tempted to say, this is it! This is the end! Jesus brings back their hearts and minds and, and zeroes it in and says, how is it that the Son of Man must suffer? Because Elijah has already come. What is the third theme? We've already alluded to it throughout. It's the bafflement that they have. Go back to verse 5. Well, we've already talked about verse 5 and 6. When in doubt, talk nonsense. Because you don't know what to do. But look at, uh, look at verse 10. Let me read verse 9 and 10. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they're not allowed to tell the story until after the resurrection. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So now, when in doubt, keep it to yourself. This, this is obvious that we have multiple reactions to confusion over what the Bible may be saying, what we believe God is showing us. We either talk a lot, or we don't talk at all. There's really not anything in between, right? What, what I mean is, they are given this powerful revelation, and they still are not there getting it. And the reason we know that they're not getting it is that when he was crucified, they're all hanging out in that house, depressed, not knowing what's going on. And you would think that Peter, James, and John would say, oh, that's right, on the Mount of Transfiguration, because that's what we're going to call it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he told us this would happen but they still don't see it or get it. All they knew was that Jesus was no longer in the tomb. I think it, I keep pointing out the confusion of the disciples as an, as an ongoing encouragement to everybody that even as God shows you things from His Word, you're not ever to assume you've got it all figured out. And you're not ever to assume that uh, you should have it all figured out. What we should learn to do is to say, Lord, I'm going to trust you 
that you are going to continue to see me grow in my walk with you. Because there's two other places, just, this just as, a, as a, something for you to know, where the word transfigured is used, the metamorphous word, there, it's used two other times in the New Testament, and it's in reference to you. The word in Romans chapter 12, which says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Everybody know that verse? That word transformed is the same word here as transfigured. It does not mean that you are going to shine like a light like Jesus did. Because he was transformed in a literal and physical sense as a revealing of who he was. We are transformed through the power of Christ to look more like him. And part of that transformation process is us growing in our understanding of who he is. And that happens through the Holy Spirit revealing to us who he is through the word of God. As you go and as you walk with the Lord, you shouldn't have an expectation that I've got it all figured out, but you should have an expectation that I am going to grow in my understanding of who he is and not be satisfied to stay where you are. The other thing out of this is the emphasis of the glory of Christ and the suffering of Christ, which we will spend a lot more time on as we go, because the true glory of God revealed through the rest of this story is that God so loved the world that He sent His Son to suffer, to suffer rejection, to suffer contempt, to suffer physically, to suffer unjustly, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The glory of God is in the suffering of Christ. Totally unexpected. We are accustomed to the message. They were radically blown away by the idea that the Messiah would suffer. So, so for us, to, to feast on this, to think about it, to worship God and say, Lord, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for, while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for the ungodly. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to seek and save the lost. That's why the old hymns, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Something about saving a wretch like me. Jesus is trying, before we ever get to the epistles of Paul, before we ever get to the explanation in Ephesians and Romans and Galatians and Colossians that explain it, Jesus is outlining in advance and saying, the Messiah has to suffer because I'm suffering on your behalf. And the only hope that you have is in my suffering. So, Listen to him, the Father says. Listen to him. Listen to what he's saying. And don't be put off by the bafflement. I, even though Jesus rebukes them for their hard-heartedness, he, he doesn't abandon them. He keeps moving along and keeps showing them who he is. There's a lot of hope in that for all of us. And hopefully there is encouragement that you will pursue God 
with all of your heart. Because you're never going to exhaust the knowledge of God. I have felt in my life before the feeling of, I kind of already know, you know, all the basics. It's horrible to even think that. Well, I've been a Christian for a long time. You know what you sound like? It's good that we're here. Let's build some tents. That's what you sound like when you say that. Because they were terrified, didn't know what to say. Or we could use in our translation, because they were stupid. Just made up stuff as they went. Don't stop pursuing God. Don't get a revelation from the Word of God that changes your life. Anybody had that before? You've had that before. God's Word comes roaring off the page, changes your perception of who He is, changes your perception of who you are, changes your perception of who other people are. And, and He's drawing you closer to Himself and the temptation is immediately there. I've arrived. Nobody else is getting these revelations. All these other poor slack miscreants. No, you, you are going to continue to grow. You're going to continue to transform. You're going to continue to metamorph in your own walk with the Lord. Keep at it. Keep after it. That's where prayer is important. That's where this reading of the Bible is important. We've got read your Bible stuff out there in the, uh, in the foyer to read through the Bible in a year. Even though it's March, you still got time. You can read through the Bible in a year. Nobody says it has to start on January 1st. You can start today. Read the Scripture. Learn who He is. Soak in His Word. And grow in your understanding of who He is and His glory. And what His suffering meant for you and for me. Amen? Praise the Lord. Alright, let's stand up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this day for this day. Lord, wherever we are in our walk with you, whatever level of bafflement that we are at, as you are showing us in your grace who you are, as we're growing in you, Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged to press on to know the Lord forget the things that are behind and reach forward to the things which are ahead, that we would not be satisfied or comfortable staying put or falsely thinking we've arrived, that we would have hearts that hunger to know you, genuinely hunger to know you. Lord, I pray that anybody listening would hear that you suffered and died as the Messiah, as the glorious Son of God, because of the great love which you had for us. Even while we were yet sinners, you died for the ungodly. Lord, I pray that that reality would land squarely in our hearts and that it would draw 
sinners to repentance. Lord, for those of us that have been walking with you, I pray that it would land squarely in our hearts and draw us to worship and into thanksgiving and gratitude. Lord, let it be real for all of us. Not just a church thing, but the reality of your suffering, the reality of your resurrection, that power. God, let it be transforming in our hearts and our minds. Lord, we thank you for all of this. We thank you for this week in front of us. We pray that we would be people who reflect the glory and the light of Christ. Lord, we thank you for this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Church, you are officially dismissed. We will be back here at 6 p.m. for prayer.